0: You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence in the name of your Son who has fulfilled all righteousness in our place, has endured the penalty of your wrath for our sake, has entered into the heavens on our behalf, and who now stands at your right hand in majesty. We pray, Lord, that according to your steadfast love and according to this redemption that you have wrought and according to the sanctification that you have promised, that you would now bless your word and that you would make application of it to our souls, that you would stir us up as a congregation to love the gospel, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to love your church, and to serve your church with everything that is in us because of Christ Jesus. Hear our prayer, O Lord, and answer our request according to your good and perfect will. Amen. Well, as you know, last Lord's Day, I had the opportunity to preach at a, I guess we could consider it a sister church in central Ohio, and the service that I served in was their 16th service as a constituted congregation, which comes out to about four months that they've been meeting. Needless to say, this is a very young church. And everything about the work from going into the building and having to set, tear down what other people had, had left and, and set up the, the, the place for worship and the place for the meal to the tearing everything down and cleaning up as they were leaving. Everything about what we did reminded me very much of our, our own early days as a church, except this one thing. I do believe that they're on a little bit more solid doctrinal footing than we were when we began in our early days, most of you are aware our church is a, is the second in a in a long series of two church plants from uh, by the same group of people. As far as I can tell, there are about nine of us left from that original group, and the first church that was planted no longer exists. It's gone. No website. No email address. No nothing. Gone. And so we know from firsthand experience that some young churches last and some young churches do not last some church plants succeed some church plants fail and so as i was thinking and praying and discussing with some of the men there prior to going what would be uh, useful for me how, how i could be of some benefit to the congregation as i preached to them i approached the occasion as if i were addressing myself Somewhere around 10 years ago, if I could, you know, I'm by no means an expert in any of this, but you learn some things, a lot of them because you did them wrong. And looking back, you think, boy, I wish I would have known some of these things from the beginning. And that led me to this text. If someone were to ask me, what do you think is the difference between those types of churches... That succeed and those types of churches that do not succeed. I could only answer completely or absolutely, I would have to say that it's merely the sustaining hand of Almighty God blessing the ordinary means of grace. But I do think that there is a secret as to how a church goes about the business. ...of those ordinary means of grace. And I believe that this passage actually outlines and gives us the secret. So let's open up the text. I'm going to focus our attention on verse 8 that I read at the end... ...but we'll we'll look at everything around it. If we're going to make sense of what Paul's doing here... ...we have to take note of, of the overarching context of what's being said... Broadly speaking, we're in one of three epistles that we typically refer to as the pastoral epistles. And they're given that name because they were written specifically from the Apostle Paul in the office of not only apostle, but also as a man who had planted churches, who had had for brief periods shepherded congregations and then left them. Written from Paul to a man named Timothy, and and the third letter is to Titus, these young men who are going to carry on the work in Paul's absence. In other words, these letters are written and aimed specifically at helping young pastors of young churches keep their hearts and their minds on the task that lies before them in the local church. We know very well 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This was Paul's hope. I want to come to you, Timothy, but while we're waiting for the circumstances to work out and providence to work out so that I can come to you, I'm writing you this letter so that you'll know what to do in the church. Paul's goal is that Timothy would know how one ought to behave, how one ought to conduct himself in the church. He wants to help Timothy as a young pastor know how to to manage the affairs of the church. That's why these letters are so extremely helpful when it comes to conducting the affairs of the church. We learn a lot of things from the the descriptive uh, narrative of the book of Acts. But as I've said before, if the book of Acts were the the end-all, be-all of church order and structure, the rest of the New Testament wouldn't exist. The rest of the New Testament primarily was written back to those churches planted in the book of Acts to help them straighten out many of the messes they had gotten themselves in and and even the other epistles written to directly answer a lot of the issues that those churches had and had... uh, communicated to Paul. He wrote back to them very specifically. But these these epistles, or these pastoral epistles, are written very broadly to help these men conduct the overarching affairs of what we might consider the institution of the church. Now, the, the reality is that Paul never made it to Timothy. He wanted to go to him. He wanted to help him he wrote to him so that if he would delay he would know what to do until then but Paul never made it he never he never got to Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring which makes uh, as far as we can tell first and second Timothy the final letters that the apostle Paul ever wrote that that ever left his hand Keeping that in mind, if we move closer to 2 Timothy, that only increases the significance because we're reading the very last letter that the Apostle Paul ever penned, as far as we can tell. He even says in chapter 4 of this epistle, verses 6 and 7, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in our study of the Revelation, we're seeing that's the victory. Keep the faith until the end. He's saying, Timothy, I've done all that the Lord has laid out for me to do. I've finished. My course is done. So we're reading the Apostle Paul's final words. And we know... in in our society someone's last words and especially their last will and testament are extremely important especially if you're if you're in conversation with somebody who might be and, and and you come to find out they are lying on their deathbed their last words are this is not a time for for confusion it's not a time for for idle speech you don't sit down and talk about the weather it's none of the words are are throwaway words it's not a time for small talk there's no there's no mincing of speech it's To the point, and every word has weight to it. That's what we're reading here in 2 Timothy. Now, as we move a little bit closer into the the chapter that we're looking at in verses 1 to 3, Paul says, Essentially, you need to teach other other men. Now, if anybody had learned this lesson, it would be the Apostle Paul, right? He's at the end of his rope, and what has he has he done? He's invested himself in at least Timothy and, and others. He's saying, You need to do this now, teach other men. Give yourself, Timothy, to passing on the torch. Always have men coming through the pipeline prepared for the ministry. It's a significant part of the pastor's job. Now, again, think of the irony of this compared to the way we typically think in our culture. We know from the letters, Timothy is a young man. Don't let anybody despise you for your youth. Young man Timothy, be training other men. Now, there's a lot that Timothy had to learn In his experience, there was a lot that he would gain as he got older and older. Paul doesn't say, "Wait until you get really old and have everything figured out, and then begin to teach." No, he says, "Just start. Teach other men who will be able to teach others also." In verses four to seven, he he says, to summarize, don't get caught up in unimportant things. And he uses these three illustrations, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. The soldier, he says, essentially, stay focused on your task. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. There are some things, and this is specific to pastors, but it has broad application. But he's telling Timothy, there are some things, Timothy, that are civilian pursuits, Now, it's not a sin for civilians to act like civilians and to give themselves to civilian affairs, but a soldier doesn't busy himself with that because he's a soldier. A soldier doesn't give himself to those things. And when it comes to the ministry, Paul wants Timothy to know, Timothy, there are some things other men are going to do that you can't do because you're not a civilian. You've been enlisted. You're a soldier now. The second illustration is the athlete. The athlete who competes according to the rules is the one who gets crowned you got to go by the rules. There are right ways and wrong ways of conducting yourself in the ministry and carrying out the task of the church. There are rules. Again, that's, that's an astonishing statement in our society. There are things that you ought not to do as, as a church. And there are things that you are to do. There are rules. In the ministry, there are rules. You compete according to the rules and you'll get the prize. The last illustration is the farmer. Work hard and when you give yourself to the labor, you will benefit from the fruit. The ministry is going to be difficult, but it will be rewarding if you will give yourself to it. So far in this chapter, Paul has said that crucial to the pastoral ministry is preparing and training other men and... Keeping one's attention at the task at hand. Don't busy yourself with those other things. Compete according to the rules. Work hard, and you will reap the rewards. So, the Apostle Paul, in his final exhortation to his spiritual child, explaining what Timothy is to do in the church, he emphasizes the importance of singleness and devotion of heart and mind to the work. Now, we, we've probably all thought about this. We have young children. We feel like there's so much we want to teach them. So much we want to bestow upon them. What if you found out that you, you had two weeks to live? What would you begin to do? Would you write a journal? Would you make a, a, a vid- series of videos trying to pour out everything you could a, into your children knowing that this is all they would have left of you after you're gone? What, what would you do? This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's pouring out the last thing to this young Timothy, and he says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now in verse 14, he's going to go on to say, Remind them of these things. Charge them. Who's that? That's the faithful men. Those faithful men that you're going to teach who will be able to teach others also, remind them and charge them of this thing. So what what Paul is giving to Timothy here is what is going to be passed on to other men, which is going to be transferred down through the history of the Christian church. He's passing the baton knowing that Timothy's hand is going to be on it for a short time and it's going to be passed to the next hand for a short time down to the next hand. And essential to that baton is this command. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The last letter that the greatest evangelist and church planner that the world has ever known... The final words from an aged saint to a young pastor, his, his young child in the faith, essential to the ongoing ministry of the church, crucial to keeping your, your heart and your mind devoted to the task, is this command. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now hopefully you see how, how weighty this is. You can say this about everything in this epistle... But how weighty this this statement is. So let's unpack it. Paul commands Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. And from this point, we're just going to walk through the words of that statement, the, the four particular sections. Hopefully, by the time you leave, you will have this verse memorized. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Four parts, very simple. He commands Timothy to remember Jesus Christ... He's not telling Timothy or commanding or encouraging Tim- Timothy to a sentimental commemoration of a life well lived. He's not saying, don't ever forget that really uh, interesting, intriguing story about that, that carpenter in Nazareth or, or that, that, the story of the man on the cross. He's exhorting Timothy to doctrinal fidelity faithfulness to the doctrine that is contained in the gospel about Jesus Christ. Remember that. The command to remember is a present active command. In other words, the the idea is don't just bring it to your mind for a second, but always be doing this. Now, again, Timothy's a young man, young in the ministry. So the admonition to remember doesn't mean reach way back in the past and try to bring back to the forefront of your mind that forgotten story that happened way way back when. He's not saying that. The command, again, is to continually bring this same truth to the front of your mind. He's not saying retrieve what's been forgotten. He's saying put it in the front of your mind, stamp it on the front of your mind so that it's never forgotten. Always be be about the business of bringing this thought into your mind and into your heart. Always be about this work, Timothy. Be regularly bringing back before the frontlets of your mind's eye Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, why does Paul have to say that? Again, Timothy's a young man. He's not been in the ministry too awfully long. Does, does Paul believe Timothy's already forgotten the, 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 the facts of the gospel? no. Paul knows that it's our tendency as fallen creatures, and especially the tendency of young pastors, of young churches, to get so busy in the details of the work of the church, or the work of the ministry or even the work of the kingdom, that we lose sight of the king himself. And we forget why we're doing what we're doing. So he says, remember. He says, remember Jesus. As you know, the name Jesus means... Yahweh saves. Now how quickly do we forget all of the import of that name when the name Jesus or Jesus Christ or the Lord Christ or the Lord Jesus or King Jesus, when that language is on our lips so very often as it ought to be, how quickly do we fly past it without remembering that when we utter the name of Jesus, we're making a reference to Yahweh's salvation. The salvation of God. The strong right hand of God. In Matthew one twenty one, he was given this name because he would save his people from their sins. The salvation of Yahweh come to a people who are in sins and need to be saved. Think of all of the implications. Jesus has a people, a specific group of individuals that are his. They belong to him. As he says, yours they were, Father, and you gave them to me. These people have sins. They have iniquity and transgression and sins. They are tainted in their nature with sins. They have gone beyond the line of transgression and passed into what God has forbidden. They've fallen short of what God has required. They have sins, transgressions against God, crimes against God. But this Jesus is going to come and be the salvation of those people from those sins. This salvation procured by Jesus is synonymous, based on His name, with Yahweh Himself saving those people. Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible that we read about in the Old Testament, there's one God in the Bible, His name is Yahweh. Yahweh is saving a people through the man Jesus. The man Jesus is the salvation of Yahweh. Now how easily do we set our eyes upon The task of the church, perhaps they might be areas of growth, they might be areas of evangelism, they might be areas of expanded fellowship and and, and things that are important to a church. But how often do we fix our eyes upon those things and forget that we are the objects of the salvation? We're not, the Christian church is not, we are not the dispensers of salvation. We are the objects of the salvation. We, have, we, have, we are the ones being saved. And so we have to remember Jesus Christ, the one who has saved and is saving us, even as we come together. As you sit here, recognize, if you're a believer, I have been saved by this Christ, and even now, through these ordinary means of grace, I am being saved by Yahweh. If a church ever gets to the point... If we ever get to the point where we see ourselves as the dispensers of salvation or the dispensers of sound doctrine, rather than the recipients of a free salvation and the recipients of any true knowledge of God in Christ, we will lose our way as a church. We might be busy, but we'll be dead because we have forgotten we are the objects of the salvation. That doesn't mean other people ought not also be the objects of that salvation, but we need it. We need Yahweh. We need Christ. He says, Timothy, remember Jesus. Now, how is Yahweh going to save these people in the man Jesus? And wh- what are they what are they going to be saved from? Well, we keep reading. Remember Jesus, Christ. The Messiah, the anointed one. Timothy, don't forget the Messiah. Remember the Messiah. Bring to your mind. Always be about this business of stirring up yourself by way of remembrance the salvation of God in Christ the Messiah. In the Old Covenant, the prophet, priests, and kings were anointed to symbolize their official capacities. They served as officers, and these offices were offices of mediation. The prophets were appointed by God to speak to the people on behalf of God. The kings were appointed by God to rule over the people and defend the people on behalf of God. The priests represented the people before God in worship. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, remember Jesus, yes, the Savior. Remember Jesus the Christ. Remember Jesus the mediator, the one who's making and has made reconciliation. Now, why do we need a mediator? Why can't I just stroll up into the presence of God? Why do I need a go-between? The Scripture says, "Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." Our sins separate us from God. Your sins drive a wedge between you and God. Even if you're a Christian, and here's a, here's a, I'm going to correct a, a false doctrine here. The fact that we are declared righteous before God through faith in Christ doesn't mean that from that point onward, when we sin, there's there's no Fracture, no disturbance, no wedge in our communing and relationship with God. Peter told the saints that, they, that the husbands and wives need to get along that their prayers may not be hindered. Right? That, that when you're in sin, you're not having this. You can't have this. Does that mean you're no longer justified? No. But it means you will be miserable as a believer until that is brought back into to a right relationship through repentance. But, but why do we need it from the very beginning? Because we're sinners. Our sins separate us from God by nature. Your sins separate you from God. Your sins cause a revulsion in God and demand that His justice be wielded against you. Paul says to Timothy, but remember Jesus Christ. Remember the mediator. Remember that there is one God... There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Remember that one. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will save His people by being their mediator, by being a go-between. He makes reconciliation between these two parties. God being the offended party, we being the criminals and rebels. We are are not the, the victims of this scheme. We are the offenders. But it's very easy as ministers of reconciliation... And as Christians in general, to forget that. We're the objects of reconciliation. We were once far off. You and I, we were once strangers, alienated from the people of God and the promises of God. How does Jesus Christ reconcile people to God who are alienated from God, cursed by God, sinners and rebels against God, deserving the everlasting punishment of God? How does He do this? We go back to those offices. Primarily the office of priest. As our high priest, he offers a sacrifice of, a, of atonement which satisfies the justice of God. Now think about it. You, you've got this people, the scriptures tell us, a number that no man can number, who every one of them have sinned, at least once. And every one of their sins are worthy of an eternal damnation. They've... Offended, an infinitely holy and righteous God, and somehow this one is going to come along, and He's going to do away with all of that offense, so that justice is satisfied, and these sinners can come into the mercy of God, or into the presence of God. Now, we we might begin to think, what kind of animal would have to be sacrificed to make that sort of appeasement, or or how many animals would it take to make this sacrifice of atonement? Look back at the text. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Now what does that assume? It assumes He died. In this time period, the death of Jesus was a widely known fact and understood by most people. Nobody really uh, tried to refute the idea of the death of Jesus, but it was the resurrection that was denied by many. Remember, the, 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 the Jews had a story that circulated amongst them that the disciples came and, and roughed up these Roman guards and stole the body away. Not many people denied the death of Christ. They were there. People were there. They left. They left beating their breasts. Something has happened here. They knew it. So when he references risen from the dead, he's he's assuming what everyone sort of agreed upon, but then hammering in on the part that was being disputed. He's risen from the dead. Yes, he died, but yes, he was raised from the dead. Remember the death. Don't ever forget the death. You never leave the death, but don't forget that he's also no longer dead. He didn't stay dead. So what is the sacrifice of atonement which satisfied the justice of God? Not an animal or thousands of animals or millions of animals. It was this Jesus. He offered Himself. As Ephesians 5, 2 tells us, Christ loved us and gave up Himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As the Father inhaled the scent of the fury-scorched humanity of Jesus. He was absolutely beside himself with pleasure. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Uh, All of human history, and we can't see it this way, but all of history up to that point, and all of the sins of his people even after that point, and, and the... Eternity's requirement of payment. Imagine this God of infinite justice, of infinite knowledge of all of our sins. He's he's got this this burden of justice that must be unleashed. And then the death of Christ, it's gone. And not only does he say, well, I'm glad to have that satisfied," but he's pleased. He's happy. He, he's a happy God. It it pleased the Lord to crush him. As our mediator, Jesus Christ had to die. The wages of sin is death. The wages of your sin is death. Every single sin deserves everlasting torment. As I've said recently, I think, the reason that it's so offensive in our society to say that a woman who would murder her unborn child should be taken to the gallows that instant. The reason that's offensive is because all of these offended people, they think they're not guilty of murder. They think they don't deserve that. We all do. We're we're all guilty. We all deserve this death. The Bible teaches Jesus Christ died the death that we deserved. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's imputed the sin guilt of those he came to save. He was made to be a sin offering. How is he going to save these people? I'm going to make him a sin offering and I'm gonna, he's going to die the death that these people deserve to die. Why? Why does this have to happen? 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous... That's Christ. For the unrighteous. That's you. Why? That, for the purpose that, to the end that, He, Christ, might bring us to God. That's reconciliation. To make enemies into friends. To make once rebels into now sons. Christ died the death. Think of it. What an offering. That has to be. We... We get a glimpse of the preciousness of Christ from time to time, but we don't see it the way the Father sees it. But but just try to imagine what an offering it had to have been to please this God eternally. To the extent that He says, don't you dare try to add anything to what my Son has done. If you add anything to this, that makes it a stench. If you leave it the way it is, I'm pleased, eternally pleased, as if the the scent of this sacrifice wafts up into the the Father's nostrils for all of eternity. Eternally pleased. Don't add to it. What a precious one this must have been to be able to die one death and leave the Father that pleased. He had to die, but he was also raised from the dead. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. He did not stay dead. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. As he says in Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. Raised because of our justification. Raised because all righteousness has been fulfilled. There's no need for him to stay dead. Death can't hold him. The grave can't keep him. He's got to come out. It's only right that Christ come back from the dead. It's only just that He come back from the dead. The offering of His own self in death as a sacrifice to God in our place was accepted. Our debt of sin was paid and so He was raised. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the display of the satisfaction of God in the work of His Son reconciling us to Himself. If He came back from the dead, reconciliation has been made. That's that's why Paul says if there, if if Christ has not been raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. But why? Not because the whole thing's a sham, but because we're sinners. We stand condemned if Christ is not raised. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But that's not all. He continues. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, why does this matter? Is this a remnant of Jewish ancestral nostalgia from a former Pharisee? Now, Timothy, don't forget. I know that you're half Jew, half Greek. Don't forget. This Jesus, he's of the offspring of David. He's he's full Jew, and I'm full Jew, and so stay in your place. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. The reference to Jesus Christ being the offspring of David has a natural significance and a royal significance first of his nat- the natural significance of the, the he's of the line of the tribe of Judah naturally or biologically you can see this in Matthew chapter 1 what does this prove it proves his humanity that this Jesus is true man he was born from a biological line just like you and I he had parents and grandparents and great grandparents all the way back cousins aunts and uncles it proves that he is a true man. He's a natural descendant of David. Nobody denied the existence of David or that he had parents or that he had children. They had the records. This man is a descendant of that David. But that also carries with it royal significance because God told David that he would put one on his throne forever. Second Samuel seven sixteen Your throne shall be established forever. In Psalm 2, 6, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We talked about the death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him "...and bestowed on him the name that is above every name." He didn't just die, he was raised. But he wasn't just raised, he ascended to the right hand of God as king of kings... ...and he's taken his seat on the throne of David, a forever throne, an everlasting throne. And so that phrase, the offspring of David, is a reference to Christ's present position as king over all kings... The present establishment of His eternal kingdom. Not some future hope, but a present reality. Matthew 2, 2 tells us He was born King. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, He refers to Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. The same Jesus who died was raised. The one who was raised ascended. The one who ascended is seated. The one who is seated will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will judge all men. Why? Because he's king. And that's what kings do is they render judgment. So Paul tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember the king. Remember the risen Lord Remember the kingdom that rules over all. Remember where your allegiance lies, Timothy. Remember your commission. You serve this one. You're not serving me. You're serving Him. Always be bringing to mind the salvation of Yahweh provided in the mediator, the man in Christ Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice to God for the sins of his people, who was raised and who now sits enthroned in the heavens. This is what we have to keep in the forefront of our minds as a church at all times. But then he continues, as preached in my gospel. Paul says, remember the gospel that I preached and keep preaching that gospel. This was Paul's message. Remember the gospel. Keep it right in front of you. Not evangelism for evangelism's sake, but Christ. Evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel is never an end in itself. And any true, faithful, useful evangelism is going to come from people who cannot stop remembering that this gospel is for them. We're not the dispensers. We have received, and we merely pass it on and people who get that in their brains, I am a recipient of this truth. I have been saved by this gospel. I, my relationship with God is being mediated by this Christ. Those are the kind of people who make good evangelists. It's not the people who have decided, I've got the truth. I'll give, I'll give them the truth. Just stand back. I'll give it to them. That doesn't work. It's a gospel. And why is this good news? Because of the problem of sin, of alienation, of the coming judgment. The good news is that God has in Himself provided the solution to the problem of sin by sending His own Son for the likeness of, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In the death of Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see that God is fully satisfied with what Christ has accomplished. In the ascension of Christ, we see the coronation of the King of Kings. Far from reducing the gospel to its least common denominators, these short phrases like this often make the gospel explode into a world of study and meditation and consideration. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul commands it to Timothy... He says, Timothy, I charge you to charge other men. You tell other men to do the same thing. He's expecting, Paul will tell Timothy, and he's expecting Timothy's going to train other men who will be able to train other men so that there's always this chain of charge handed down to the Christian church. That's why it's my job to say, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in God's gospel, Paul's gospel, Timothy's gospel, my gospel. There's only one gospel. This is what we do as a church. If we, if we will keep this in the forefront of our minds, not as some tagline or slogan, if we will truly remember this gospel, God will bless it. Now, we live in a Christian climate in which many would use that text as a way to so narrow the focus of a church that nothing else matters. Swinging to an extreme in which remember Jesus Christ, or as it's been used in the past, being Christ-centered, somehow does away with everything else. Texts like this. You got texts like First Corinthians 15. Remember the gospel I preached to you, and people truncate that. And basically, what you come up with is here. Here's what Christianity is: mental assent to the historical facts of the death, resurrection of Jesus makes you a Christian. That's all that, that is needed. Just, just uh, let me tell you this story: Christ died. Christ was raised. Do you believe that? Yeah. Well, you're a Christian. That's, what, that's how it's reduced when the Apostle Paul never meant to, for these statements to be taken that way. We have to remember that the head of the church is, is, is concerned with every issue that she faces. There are secondary issues that don't make or break someone standing with God. But in a church, there are more issues than just justification by faith alone. There's more to salvation than just Regeneration. There's sanctification. There's the ongoing discipleship and spiritual growth that must come when a person has truly been converted. To illustrate the point, oil in a car is absolutely necessary to its operation. But if all you do is fill it up with oil and nothing else, eventually that car is going to stop working. It will be useless. Why is that? Because the oil, while acting as a very important lubricant, simply serves to make sure the vehicle can continue to do the other things that it's made to do. Well, the same is true in a church. As a church, we must always remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. But we don't stop there. The constant remembrance of the lifeblood of the gospel makes us ready for every other endeavor that we face. So we don't stop there, but we also don't leave it behind. We're always about the business of remembering Jesus Christ. To illustrate it another way with another doctrine, there are a lot of people who, who come to understand the sovereignty of God. And they go to one extreme to, to, to use the sovereignty of God to excuse laziness. Laziness in their life. Well, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign. Sovereign. Some even go so far as to use it in evangelism. Do you share the gospel? Well, what does it matter? God is sovereign. Do you share the gospel with pleading and with prayer and with with thinking of the the best ways to capture this person's mind, to bring them to Christ? Well, God's sovereign. I just spit it out and go on. One's duties as a citizen of this nation... Like we got to imagine, if you will, an election were to take place. Oh, what does it matter? God is sovereign. Laziness doesn't just apply to your nine-to-five job. It applies to every area in which you have been placed in a position and given responsibilities. And a part of that in our nation is to be a good citizen of our nation. We don't say, well, God is sovereign, so who cares? We say, no, God is sovereign, therefore I will be the best Christian. I will be the best evangelist. I'll be the best citizen that there is. The sovereignty of God doesn't make us lazy. It motivates us to be diligent about our duties, knowing that God is going to use all of these things for His glory. In the same way, to the point here, the supremacy and primacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make us indifferent to other matters in church life. It acts as the undercurrent which carries us along in all of our duties and gives life to everything that we do. Think about these pastoral epistles specifically. What what kind of things does Paul address as he's writing to Timothy in these two letters? He talks about false teaching. He addresses prayer meetings. He addresses modesty. He addresses the qualifications for elders and deacons. He addresses pastoral duties. He addresses how to treat the elderly and widows. Uh, He addresses the issue of a pastoral stipend, relationships between slaves and their masters. He addresses contentment, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. He addresses a pastor's rapport amongst his people. He addresses the primacy of preaching the word. Fixing our minds upon Christ doesn't make any of these things irrelevant. It actually gives them their relevancy when we understand that everything that we undertake as a church is being done for the the Christ who's risen from the dead, who is the offspring of David, who's being preached in the gospel. When it comes to practical matters that we have to deal with in our lives, in the workplace, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel in your work, at the workplace. What's that going to do? It's not going to make you a bad worker. That's going to make you a good worker, the best worker. It's going to make you a good co-worker. It's going to make you a good, friendly, dependable worker. In, In your home life, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. What's that going to do? It's not going to make you lazy. It's going to make you resourceful and laborious, but it's also going to help you to be content with what you have and to steward the things that God gives for His kingdom. It's Christ's kingdom. Christ is the one who's the offspring of David, not me. When it comes to the education of our children, what do we do? Well, we remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. He's the reason and the emphasis of discipleship. And that's what education is. It's discipleship. When it comes to family worship, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. In family worship, the point is not to go through a routine to get these steps done so that you can move on, especially as your kids begin to get older. The the point is set Christ before them. Speak highly of Him. Exalt Him so that they love Him. Even even if if they're not converted. The, The very idea of this man Jesus ought to thrill our children because we've spoken so highly of Him because we can't but remember Him. Some of us might have the opportunity in the coming days and weeks to gather with extended family members who don't see the world the way that we see it. So what do you do? You remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. Now what does that mean? It means you walk into the house, snatch the remote, cut the TV off, and say, everybody, be quiet. I'm going to tell you the gospel, and I'm going to leave. No, that's not what you do. You don't neglect the matters that might be important to other people. You have to try to have the mind of Christ. Show concern and compassion for the lost. Be a friend of sinners in order to win them. It might not be this Thanksgiving, but it might be the next one. Or it might be seven Thanksgivings down the road when they recognize that you're not an, an arrogant person like they have thought you were. This person is actually concerned about who I am. This is a kind person. Remember Christ, a friend of sinners. The Pharisees, they got so upset because tax collectors and sinners were going to Christ and he was eating with them. May our approach to the church and the world be transformed because we cannot help but remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Now perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. So a lot of this sounds very strange, and you think, well, I don't even know what that means to, to bring that to my mind. I don't know that it's ever really been in my mind up until this point. Well what is it that, what, that a lost person is to do? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Look to him. Repent of your sins and bow the knee to this king, this one who has a people, who's come to save this people by mediating between them and God, by making an atonement of his own self, offering himself as a sin offering to God, making reconciliation that all who come to him will be saved. Bow the knee to this king in the language of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Come to him low and humble in adoring and throw yourself at his mercy. Entrust your eternal soul to Him, trusting that His work is actually sufficient. The Father is pleased with all that He's done. All you must do is come and receive what He has done in your place and in your stead. Now let's pray. And as we do, I want to keep in mind a few things. We keep these things in mind because we're remembering Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. We need to remember our nation and its leaders. We're commanded to pray for those who are over us. We need to pray for our nation. Secondly, we, there's a number of, uh, there are a number in our own congregation who are sick. We need to pray for them. Specifically, the Bumgarner family, as some of you know, Tiffany had a miscarriage yesterday. And so that's why they're at home today, hopefully loving one another, caring for one another. So pray for them. The work in Malawi is ramping up. As others know, that our presence has once again been requested after the beginning of the year. And so we're just now beginning to think through and, and try to... Work out some of that, the plans for that. We pray for the work in Malawi. And pray that in all these things we would be busy, but also that we would not lose sight of our Savior. Let's pray.